one of our clients will say, I was just trying to be nice. I was trying to help this person and now they're suing me. And it's, it, it's so heartbreaking, but that, that happens all the time. Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to spend some time with us. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies, start up, operate, get funded, and exit. We are daily inspired by the people we work with and want a chance to share some of these stories with you, our listener. So whether you're already an entrepreneur, want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success. This podcast is for you. Today's guest is my colleague at Hutchison, fellow attorney Ashley Pittman. Ashley's practice focuses on employment law and general corporate matters. Ashley's here today to tell us the top employment law considerations for startups. At Hutchison, we specialize in working with startups, so we completely understand that when you're trying to build a business from nothing, legal isn't always your top priority. You need to quickly figure out product market fit, cash flow, finding investors, and about a hundred other tasks. But here's the thing. There are some things, like how you work with employees and contractors, that if you don't get it right initially, it can have huge tax and equity implications down the road. At Hutchison, we're always happy to clean up the mess that you might find yourself in but it's a whole lot easier to set things up the right way from the start. I've talked with Ashley a lot about her practice, and sometimes tasks like putting together a handbook are pretty standard, but other times the CEO wants to make sure, well, maybe their dog can come to work. The dog one was, it was a, it was a first for me, and it was kind of, gosh, we have to think through what are all the different potential things? What if the dog bites somebody? What if the dog has an accident? What if you have to go into a meeting? Who sits with the dog? what if somebody has an allergy and like are, is that going to become an issue for them that they can't come to the workplace that one was probably the most atypical a lot of the other ones are you know if we have a social gathering for the company and we serve alcohol should we have some kind of policy of like how to conduct yourself and do we call ubers for people you see that kind of thing a lot so and i actually i think texas has some very specific gun laws that required Texas-specific employee handbook policies around open carry. So we've, that's probably the weirdest one I've seen is that having to have a like Texas supplement to an employee handbook around whether you could carry your firearm or not into the workplace. As attorneys, sometimes it seems like we have to think of every possible scenario, but many scenarios are actually pretty common. And so to start, I asked Ashley, what are issues she sees the most in her employment practice? The biggest is, are you bringing on your team as employees? And if so, are you paying them? Mm-hmm. And, and that's an area that there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of issues, at least in the very early stages. Once you have some revenue coming in, some investors, it becomes less of an issue because typically by then you start paying people. But in those early days when it's you and a team of three of your friends or your roommates from college, people are a little less careful about abiding by all these rules and it can come back and bite you. Definitely the big ones are, are you classifying your team as independent contractors or as employees? If they are employees, are you paying them minimum wage? Hmm. You are supposed to. And equity compensation does not count toward that minimum wage. I know we all wish that it did. A lot of founders do, but 
it unfortunately does not. And deferred compensation issues are, are another big one, but those are those are certainly the highlights. Are you paying them and are they an employee or a contractor? Well, I mean, it makes sense, you know, kind of the big things when you think about a job, <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> what are my roles and how am I getting paid? So it makes sense for the business side of things that that's also a key. But I, I, I think, at least as I'm thinking about this, I want to try to break this down almost as I think of the life cycle of a relationship between an employer and their workers or whoever's coming in. So, you know, we've got hiring and engaging, you mentioned compensation, and then, you know, worst case scenario, a, a termination event. So, you know, as you think about hiring, you, you know, you touched on independent contractors, and employees, but what are some of the key things that a, a startup should think about when they think about looking for workers to fill the different roles in their company? In kind of a non-legal sense, I, you want to look for people who both believe in your product or service, but also in you as the founder and the head of this company. And then in kind of a legal sense, you you should give serious thought to whether or not you're able to pay these folks. And if not, can you actually classify them as an independent contractor? And to be clear, it's not enough to just write on the top of the agreement, independent contractor agreement or consulting agreement. The IRS and the Department of Labor do not care what you call it. They have their own tests for whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor. And so this kind is, of, I was going to say, like at a high level, what is, what is that distinction? Yeah, they, they both have their own set of criteria, but it boils down to who kind of has control over when and how the services are performed in this relationship. Does the person get to choose their own hours? Is there, you know, what rate that they're paid dependent on how many hours they put in? Do they provide their own equipment? Do they work from their own facility? That all looks more like an independent contractor. Is it for a set project or a set like a three month engagement that looks more like a contractor? Where is an indefinite period on a salary basis? We provide your laptop or you come to our office and work. That all looks more like an employee. So it, it ultimately, you know, they have their own tests. There's no kind of bright line. If you check this number of boxes on our test, you are an employee, but it's it, it boils down to kind of does the service provider have control over when and how they do their services or is the employer in charge and looks more like an employee? So I guess for our listeners, why does it matter? What, what's the big difference between a contractor and employee and why that distinction makes a difference? Yeah. So employees are entitled to minimum wage. That's that's the big one is if you, as frequently happens, if you classify someone as an independent contractor, pay them only in equity because you don't have any cash yet. And then it turns out they were misclassified and they were actually an employee. They could be entitled to back pay, back mm -hmm. wages, potentially benefits if that was something you were offering to actual employees, not typically the case in this early stage, but even more kind of concerning for founders is typically when you set up this separate legal entity from yourself, that is your company, your startup, that shields you from a lot of personal liability, right? The company is the one entering into these different contracts. But when it comes to matters of wage and hour law, there can be personal liability if you were the person who made the decision not to pay someone wages they were entitled to. So it's it's pretty seriously risky to not pay somebody or misclassify them as, an, as a contractor instead of an employee. 
you know, if truly there is no cash, then you can structure the relationship to be that of a contractor instead of an employee by looking at the criteria that the IRS and the DOL put out and saying, okay, you can go consult for other companies as well. And you choose how many hours per week will pay you this hourly rate and, you know, try to conform with the test to make sure that person is a contractor so that you don't get into this potential misclassification risk. But that is the main thing that kind of drives that decision I found for founders is I don't have cash to pay them a salary or wages. So they're a contractor and I'm paying them in stock options. So that's fine as long as the relationship actually is that of a contractor. So it sounds like, you know, there are steps you can take to protect yourself, but it's really something founders and these young companies have to think about early on and, and, get a help from somebody like you to kind of talk through these issues and, and plan for it. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's one of the things that I, that I really recommend is talking to an attorney, an accountant, someone in these early days to kind of avoid having these issues blow up down the road. It's much better to have had these conversations, gotten something in writing up front and pay those legal fees than to have to pay way more in legal fees to fix it later. And there, there are, you know, affordable options out there. You know, a lot of firms like us offer billing arrangements for early stage companies. There are some online solutions as well for this kind of thing, but it's, it's really worth it to get, you know, even a 30 minute call with someone to say, Hey, can you help me better understand this and avoid this blowing up later? So, so how do founders kind of fit into that? I mean, if, if you know, you and I start a, a business in our dorm room in college and it's just the two of us kind of running this business, are, are we employees? Are we owners? I mean, does that matter? Are you still considered an employee of the company? Yeah. So there, there is an exemption for minimum wage if the founder owns at least 20% of the company's capitalization and is involved in the actual management and executive decisions. So if I, you know, if you and I are 50-50 owners of this company and we are truly running it, we both own 50%, we can be employees and not pay ourselves minimum wage and not pay ourselves overtime. The problem is when you have multiple founders that like, let's say you have seven founders and that takes you down below the 20% mark, or you start bringing on folks who are just somebody to help me with the programming and I gave him 5% of the company, that's not going to do it. So, and and then how about you know interns? You know, a lot of young companies kind of work with college interns or, or something like that to try to get motivated, but you know, hopefully cheaper <laughs> labor. How, how do interns kind of fit into the contract employee distinction? Yeah, so interns are there's kind of a separate bucket for unpaid interns. The Department of Labor has a test that if you meet the you know this list of criteria that you can not pay your interns, but it is hard to meet that, that threshold. And so the safest thing to do, if you can, is to make them an employee and pay them minimum wage, mm -hmm. pay them you know, whatever your state's minimum wage is. The test basically boils down to who's getting the benefit of the relationship. And the answer should be the intern and not the employer. So, you know, is the intern getting college credit? Is the intern getting the kind of training that they would have gotten in like a lab setting in their college program, but instead getting it at your company, are you basically kind of losing time on training this person? Whereas another employee could have gotten this done in, you know, a quarter of the time. Those are some of the criteria in that department of labor test. And the department of labor has a, a fact sheet on 
the unpaid internship test on their website. But basically, does it really look like what you think of as an internship of, you know, getting hands-on experience in the lab or with coding this thing for this AI program that I'm studying and, and that kind of stuff. Like I said, the safest thing to do if you can do it is to just, you know, pay them minimum wage, make them an employee. Mm-hmm. Second best, make them a contractor and pay them whatever you can or in equity. And again, structure the relationship to look like that of a contractor or then make them this unpaid intern and again, try to structure the relationship as much as possible, like what the test says, basically. Yeah, and I thought I saw somewhere on one of those tests that one of the questions was whether or not they are replacing a role or kind of filling mm-hmm. the role solely themselves or whether they're kind of under another person. So you're not really hiring this unpaid intern to be your whatever it is, you know, main stack developer or something like that. It's really they're working under somebody else to kind of gain some educational benefit for them. Absolutely. Yeah. One of one of the criteria is, is this something that somebody else, you know, that would be replacing one of your actual paid employees? And if so, that doesn't look much like an unpaid intern. Yeah. It should be, you know, that person is overseeing this person and I'm training them on how to do some coding. And sure, they might write some really great segments of code that we then deployed and that kind of thing. But it, it really comes down to we were training them, we were investing the time in teaching them that somebody else could have yeah, you know, like we said. <laughs> yeah. Now, early on, we, you kind of talked about all the different kind of documentations that companies have in place, policies, handbooks, manuals. You know, how does that relate to the, the hiring process? And when do you see kind of these young companies get these in place? Is that something, you know, right out the gate they should have in place? Or is that something that as they grow, they can implement? There's certainly some types that, that you can wait until you have a team of employees. For example, your typical employee handbook you really don't need that from you know hire number one, um, but the things that you should have from day one are non-disclosure agreement, agreements assigning any inventions and IP and work product that the employee creates while working for you. Those those are going to be critical and are going to come up in every financing you have, every acquisition negotiation, anytime you're doing diligence. Those are those are really the critical ones. Next, kind of in the list of priority, would be restrictive covenants, so non-solicitation agreements, non-competition agreements, non-disparagement. Those are in the very much nice to have and very common, very market terms, but not necessarily essential from day one. But we highly recommend, you know, that everybody you hire signs an agreement that has all of that in one place of the assignment of IP, the non-compete, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, not essential, but a good idea is things like an offer letter or an employment agreement that lays out some of the other terms, especially before you have an employee handbook that might have your PTO policy, for example, to have an offer letter that says you're entitled to 10 days of PTO per year, two of those roll over, that kind of thing, so that you have it in writing somewhere without having gone through the rigmarole of adopting a handbook. But then maybe once you have 15 to 20 employees, okay, it makes sense that we should probably get some policies in writing that apply to everybody. And, you know, as you grow, adding more things as they come up, especially if you have a remote workforce that requires state-by-state rules, all that kind of stuff. But certainly the most important is making sure that all of your employees have assigned their IP over to the company. So that raises a couple of good questions for me is like, you know, when you're doing these offer letters, and this may be jumping the gun to our termination conversation, but how does having an offer letter or an employment agreement in place affect kind of your ability to terminate employees? Is that something that's dictated by the contract 
or is that something that's generally governed by state law? So there are some things that need to have appeared either in the offer letter or in a handbook or something that will save you a headache. One of those is whether PTO gets paid out of termination. For example, North Carolina law says that, you know, you can not pay out accrued and unused PTO as long as that was written somewhere in a policy or in their offer letter. So it's, you know, not a big deal if you didn't do an offer letter. If you then have accrued and unused PTO left over, then North Carolina says, okay, by default, you pay it out. So there's, this, there's those kinds of situations that, that come up. Other than that, whether or not you had an offer letter is not going to be a huge deal in, in most terminations because every state has at will employment. You can terminate with or without cause, with or without notice. They can resign with or without cause or notice. But obviously with the caveat, you can only terminate them for reasons that are not against the law. For example, discriminatory reasons. Um, and we can get into some of that with the termination discussion. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And, and, and you touched on it too a little bit, kind of talking about some of these challenges that we're seeing now as so much of the workforce has moved remote. You know, what are some of the unique challenges from your position and from the companies that you're working with as these employees are, are more and more remote? One of them definitely is just managing your remote workforce and their performance. You're kind of seeing in the press these days kind of this push-pull around what, what they've termed quiet quitting, uh, mouse jigglers to make it look like you're working when you're not, and all that kind of stuff. So that that is kind of one bucket of issues. In terms of kind of legal compliance with folks being remote, it is causing a bit of a compliance headache when you have employees in multiple states, right? Like California has very different employment laws from North Carolina. They have way more employment laws than we do. And so having folks in different states creates a lot of confusion also, some states permit non-competition agreements, some don't, and they have varying levels of some states have paid sick leave requirements, most do not. Trying to comply with various states' laws when you have even just one employee in another state is a bit of a headache. And then dealing with payroll taxes in various states. Fortunately, most payroll providers have that kind of functionality built in. So if you use ADP or whomever as your payroll provider, they will handle a lot of that stuff for you. Other issues are doing your I-9s. When an employee first comes on board, you're supposed to inspect their passport or whatever ID they have to confirm that they are who they say that they are. They're authorized to work in the United States. You're supposed to inspect that in person. How do you do that when the person is across the country from you? There's various options, but that is an issue that remote workforces are are grappling with. Another one is just if you're providing company laptops and equipment, getting that stuff back from your employees when they resign or are terminated. If they're in California and you're in Florida, making sure that they actually return company property and don't damage it and all that kind of stuff. So it's some funky situations, but it's it's all certainly doable. You know, yeah. we, we, we've had clients who were fully remote before the pandemic. And we're only seeing more and more of that as as the pandemic, you know, went on. So this may be an obvious question or the million dollar question, but so if I'm headquartered in North Carolina, but I have a remote employee in Nashville, it, it's it, it's going to be Tennessee law that governs that employee, or is it going to be North Carolina law that governs it since they work for me, or is it very state to state? 
And of, of course, the typical lawyer answer of it depends. It depends yeah. on what it is. So, yeah. for example, issues of the employment agreement. If the employment agreement says, you know, this employment agreement is governed by North Carolina law, that's generally going to be enforceable as to the terms of the agreement. However, general employment laws applicable to that person are going to need to be the state that they are located in. Because, for example, a California court with an employee located in California is not going to enforce a non-compete in that state because as a matter of public policy, they don't enforce non-competes. So, uh, you know, in matters of wage and hour laws in different states, that kind of thing, you're generally going to have to comply with the state in which the employee is located. But general contracting principles apply to the employment contract. And, and does it make a difference? Again, this may be a it depends answer, but does it make a difference if I require that employee to be in the main office a certain percentage of the year? It probably will depend on the state, but I'm going to say that generally speaking, most states are going to say, hey, if this employee resides here and works from here, they are covered by our laws. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's very helpful. And I, I think, you know, I don't think we're going back to the way we were before. And, and I think these issues are just going to continue to be something that everybody's got to wrestle with. So I, I think that's very helpful. You know, you touched on a lot about compensation and some of the challenges that startups face, both with regard to lack of cash flow, needing to attract talent, needing to keep that talent, and then kind of also comply with things like wage laws. So what are some of the different uh, options for, for compensation and, and kind of the risks and pitfalls associated with that? Yeah. So, you know, there's, of course, do I pay my folks on a salary basis versus on an hourly basis? The reason I flag that is only because there is a large misconception around how exemption from overtime works. People seem to think if I'm salary, I am thus exempt from overtime. And it's not that simple. It's it's actually the inverse is true. If you are hourly, you are non-exempt. There are no exemptions from overtime that permit you to be paid on an hourly basis, except for some fringe cases around like movie theater employees and agriculture, not really the kind of startup right. economy. However, you can be salaried and still be non-exempt. You have to fit in one of the exemptions from overtime and salary is just one of the check marks on all of those tests. So without getting into the weeds on that, that is a very common misconception. So don't just say, oh, salary, don't have to worry about overtime. Still check whether okay. your folks are, in fact, exempt or not exempt, because if they're not exempt, then you also have to worry about, you know, recording overtime hours, paying time and a half for overtime. Then there's matters of equity compensation. There's, do I pay, you know, stock options versus restricted stock? And deferred compensation is unfortunately a, a risky area. Uh, you can thank Enron for this, but there's this wonderful section of the tax code called 409A that basically prohibits deferred compensation. You know, if, if I perform the services in 2022, but I don't get paid until 2023 for those services, I will get hit with a 20% excise tax on that unless we meet some other criteria to comply with that section or to get exemption from that section of the tax code. So what are some common buckets of deferred comp that, you know, our companies might be looking at or thinking about? Yeah. So retention bonuses 
are a big one um, where, you know, you have to be with the company through X date and then you get paid a bonus if you are in fact employed through that date. Um, severance obligations is a retention or is a is a matter of deferred compensation of upfront. We agree in your employment agreement that we will pay you X months of your salary if you are terminated without cause. A lot of times our founders will want to do a we're going to record you know, your salary for this year, and I will pay you when I actually have the cash to do that. So, you know, you'll work for me for free for a year. And then once we actually raise our series A round, I'll pay you all that back pay. That's great, but not going to comply with the law. It's going to come with a hefty tax bill. And the tax bill is applicable to the company and not to the employee. No, to the employee. Oh, to the employee. So, so that's that's why it's pretend, you know, particularly painful. Mm. It is a 20% tax bill to the recipient of that compensation plus interest. The company has some risk as well because technically you're supposed to report non-compliant deferred compensation when it is earned and there's potentially penalties if you didn't do so. So there's risk on both sides, but it's worse for the recipient of the compensation. And so a lot of companies don't want to put their people in that position, right? And it's also a hot topic with potential acquirers and investors. They will check for 498 issues and make a big deal out of it every time. <laughs> and is that deferred comp only applicable to employees or does that also come to play for contractors as well? So there is an exemption or an exception for contractors as long as they meet the 49A like conception of what a contractor is. They have to be contracting for multiple recipients of their services mm-hmm. and they can't, I believe it's like they can't get more than 70% of their revenue from like one of their consulting clients or something like that. But a lot of the time that we get into this area, it is folks who really were more like an employee who only worked for this startup, that kind of situation. And we're told you'll get back pay eventually and then come to us and find out, oh, no, I can't do that. (laughs) Or I can, but it will be painful for all of us. (laughs) And is there... I suppose not, but I was wondering if there's any liability for the company for that amount that the employee loses through the tax that they didn't expect to lose. Is there any sort of kind of civil suit for that? I certainly haven't seen anything like that. You could potentially, out of the kindness of your heart, do a tax gross up for that amount. That might just open another can of worms, though, of was that deferred compensation as well? And, you know, just a whole thing. But no, I. I think that's something that investors and acquirers look for and worry about, but I, I haven't personally seen, you know, anybody coming after an, an employer for paying deferred compensation. Gotcha. So was, tell me a little bit about kind of equity grants then, because it, you see it a lot and it kind of is shown as the appeal of working for some of these startups as you have a chance to own a piece of the company. So what are some of the more common ways that you see, equity granted to employees? And and what are some of the misconceptions you find companies have about using equity to to compensate their workers? Yeah, certainly the two most common types of equity compensation are stock options and restricted stock. Less frequently, you'll see restricted stock units or phantom stock or stock appreciation rights, where it's not truly getting a share of the company, but getting kind of a contractual right to the appreciation and value of mm-hmm. the company's of the company's stock. But options and restricted stock are much more common. Options being the contractual right to purchase shares of the company 
at a locked in price at what the company is currently valued at restricted stock being receiving the shares on day one and I own them. But if I leave the company, then whatever extent the shares haven't vested, the company can buy those shares back from me at a locked in very low price, typically like a 10th of a penny. Mm-hmm. Um, those are certainly the most, the most common in terms of misconceptions. Um, I mentioned before, one of them being, well, I paid my employees in equity comp. Why would I have to also pay them cash? Or, you know, I'm good, right? I gave them equity. Well, no, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act says you have to pay them cash, <laughs> this equity, particularly because we don't know the value of the equity. And that's another one of the misconceptions is how do you value equity compensation from day one? The value right. of equity comp lies in the potential appreciation. It's priced at, you know, 10 cents a share right now. That's not the value of that stock option you just gave that person. The value is if we sell for a dollar a share, that 90 cent spread. Mm-hmm. So we we can't really put a price tag on that right now. And founders really always, they really want to. They want right. to say to the employee, I'm giving you this and it's going to be huge. And you have to be careful with that both because, you know, that's not necessarily true, but it could, could potentially create securities law issues, right? Of like, you don't want to guarantee that we're going to have a $5 million exit. We might not. It's just impossible to know. And so you have to kind of couch it all in, here's the equity. If we have an exit like this, it would look like this for you. Consult with your own tax advisors, you know, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, you just, we can't put a price tag on what that value is going to look like right now. Ideally, it's going to be huge, but we just don't know. So does the the company's organizational structure, you know, whether it's an LLC, whether it's a, a corporation, how does that impact their ability to to kind of grant equity to their employees? The the mechanics, the minutia, the legal stuff is a little bit different in an LLC versus in a corporation, um, especially on the accounting side. At the end of the day, we can do very similar things, whether it's an LLC or a corporation. You can do a unit option in an LLC instead of a stock option in a corporation. You can do profits, interest units in an LLC instead of stock appreciation rates in a corporation. Um, You can do restricted units in the LLC instead of restricted stock. So similar conceptually, a little bit differently, you know, different mechanically, particularly because LLCs, if they're taxed as a partnership, which they frequently are, have very different tax rules and very different accounting. One of the more frequent issues that we get into when an employee receives equity and equity awards in an LLC is that then they're not technically a W-2 employee anymore. Now they are a partner in the company. They receive a Schedule K-1 alongside all the other partners in the LLC at the end of the year. And so they have to pay self-employment tax on the salary that they receive from the company because technically they're a partner of this company now. And that works for some people and for others, not so much. So it's things are a little bit different, a little bit hairier with LLCs at the end of the day, you can still do a lot of the same contractual terms and relationships, but you'd certainly want to consult with your attorney and ideally also your, your accountant on this because partnership tax is messy. It was one of the more fun classes I took in law school, but I quickly forgot a lot of it because, <laughs> oh my God, it was so complicated. <laughs> There's just so much to it. Well, I mean, I, I think that's helpful because I think the takeaway, at least for me, is that you should think about it up front. And there are decisions and trade-offs that you can make as you're organizing and as you think about how you want to compensate future employees. But if you made a decision and then down the road, 
want to have these options. You haven't boxed yourself into a corner. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot that goes into the, into the decision around corporation versus LLCs. And you've probably discussed that on the podcast before. This factors into that discussion as well, but certainly not dispositive because yep. kind of like we've said, you can arrange these things in an LLC or in a corporation. It just might be that you hold off on doing equity comp for certain people because you don't want to make them a partner or, or whatever the case may be. Oh, that, that's very helpful. Um, so now, now we move into the, the sad part about employment law or the most difficult, I think, you know, termination where things haven't worked out either because the company is not working out or the specific employee is not working out. So uh, talk through some of the risks that a company might face when it comes time to, to make that choice and, and terminate an employee. Yeah. And, and we, we touched on this before. A lot of our founders will come to us and say, you know, this person is now making all these weird claims to me, but they were employed at will. I don't have to worry about any of that, right? I can I can fire them for whatever reason I want. Sure, yes, everyone's employed at will unless their contract says otherwise, but that only goes so far as that you're not terminating the employee for a prohibited reason. So for example, Title VII, if you fired somebody on a discriminatory basis because of their race or their gender or their national origin, that's still going to be illegal, even if they were employed at will. Similarly, if I fired them because they were trying to form a union, that is also going to be illegal. And so that's that's one of those misconceptions. That's not to say that your employee necessarily has a great claim against you, but it's, you know, you, you can't just fall back on, but they were employed at will. Sure, but there are still laws around what is, you know, permitted and what is an illegal termination you know, ways to protect yourself. If you have concerns around an employee um, and either the, you know, kind of the fact pattern around why they were terminated or their resignation, you can offer them severance pay in exchange for release of claims against the company. There are certain kinds of claims that can't be released. For example, you can't release the right to go collect unemployment insurance. But things like, you know, if you have concerns around them trying to go make a claim that you discriminated against them on the basis of their gender, you could offer them a couple weeks severance or a couple months, depending on the situation, in exchange for them signing a release of claims against the company. That is the most common way to kind of protect yourself after the fact. Obviously, there's kind of a, a line to walk there between what gives the impression that we've done something wrong and we're trying to buy you off versus hey, we know this is kind of a funky situation and we wanted to ease the transition for you. Here's some severance. Can you sign this release? We'll all be happy and go on our own way. There is that kind of calculus involved with it. But yeah, typically if, if somebody resigns in a situation where we have concerns around, are they going to, you know, did they misconstrue X, Y, Z that happened? Are they going to think that was harassing? Or are they going to think the termination was because of this thing that they reported to us when actually it was because of their performance, that might be a situation where we offer some severance and try to get the release. So are there other steps that a company can take kind of, a, I don't know if this falls more on the HR side, but kind of on performance reviews and those types of things to, you know, lay the groundwork if, if the situation's not working out and how does that play out from a legal perspective? Yeah. The best thing you can do, I think, is to be very, candid about performance issues and very, very thorough in how you document the performance, the times that you, you know, counsel them on their performance and that kind of thing, because 
often when we have these situations, it's because someone tried to be nice. They didn't want the person to know about all the performance problems that they were having. And so they said, you know, we're just going to tell them that we eliminate their position because we don't want to hurt their feelings. Mm -hmm. And then the person comes back and says, well, you fired me because I'm old. And then you're trying to make the case after the fact that actually it's because you had these performance problems, you were sleeping on the job, or you know, all this kind of stuff. It's a little harder to say, to establish that after the fact because they're, of course, going to say, well, you're just grasping at straws, making things up. Whereas if you were thorough, both in your records contemporaneously as things were happening and that you counseled the person on, hey, we have some concerns about your performance around X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, we're not about to fire you necessarily, but we just wanted to talk about your performance, maybe put you on a performance improvement plan um, or not even use those words because that can kind of freak out employees, but just we'd like to see X, Y, and Z before the end of the year. That will help lay the groundwork and maybe quell some of the suspiciousness that can come up if they get terminated and they have no idea that it's coming because you never told them. And so right. now they're thinking, well, what could it have been? Is it because I'm you know, X, Y, Z protected class? So, you know, being thorough in your documentation so that you can point to that if a dispute arises, but also being candid with the employee about managing their performance goes a long way. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So now, now that the determination has happened, you know, what are some of the things that companies can do to protect themselves post-termination? So you no longer have that relationship, no questions kind of around the termination itself. You know, what are some things that companies should think about kind of protecting themselves after the termination? Yeah, so uh, this one kind of goes back to the start of the relationship. Ideally, you signed a non-competition provision with this person and a non-solicitation, the non-disclosure and the assignment of IP. If you didn't, and you're now going, oh, shoot, we're about to terminate this person, what do we do? You can have them sign that agreement now in exchange for severance pay. Mm -hmm. You know, For example, instead of a release, it's we're going to pay you three months of your salary in exchange for you agreeing to a six month non-compete and a NDA and a one year non-solicit of our clients. Of course, now they have some negotiating leverage because you want them to sign that and they're not getting much from it except the severance pay. But that is an option if you kind of missed that window at the beginning of the relationship. Um, but that is why we encourage, you know, from day one, you can kind of skip some of the other documents around bringing folks on, but getting the restrictive covenants and the assignment of IP at the beginning is really critical so that you can protect yourself in, in those situations. Talk to me a little bit about restrictive covenants because I've actually had kind of clients come to me and be like, oh, these aren't even enforceable, are they? We, could just, we can just ignore this and hire this person. So touch, touch on that just a little bit, kind of what is enforceable, yeah. what's not, what should people be thinking about? It's a little bit funky because every state is different in multiple ways. Um, so if we if we just, looking at non-solicits, those are largely going to be enforceable. Courts generally see the point in that of, you know, pre preventing you from poaching my employees, preventing you from, you know, using your knowledge of my customer base to go poach my customers or to just go and try to get them to stop doing business with me in general, even if you're not trying to, to poach them from me. So largely speaking, non-solicits are, are going to be enforceable, especially if they have a limited term of one or two years. That's very common. Uh, where courts are reticent is non-competes. California, P 
period, end of sentence, does not enforce non-competes except in an M&A scenario where like a founder sells his business and then can't compete with the business that he just sold. But generally employee non-competes not enforceable unless, except during their ear employment. So like while I'm still working for your firm, I can't go compete with you, but after employment, I can go do whatever I want. Massachusetts has some very unusual laws around non-competes. They are enforceable there, but there are different rules for how to make sure that it's enforceable. What ultimately matters is, was there sufficient consideration for the non-compete? Is it reasonable in geographic scope? Is it reasonable in duration? And every state, every court is different. Some states will say that continuing employment is sufficient consideration. So for example, in Florida, if I've already been employed with the company for a month, and then you give me a non-compete and say, you can only keep working here if you sign this non-compete, that is going to be enforceable still. North Carolina, no. You have to offer some new form of consideration, a cash bonus, a stock option, a promotion to a new role, something like that, if you if you give me the non-compete after my first day. And then in terms of what's reasonable as to geographic scope and time period is very state-by-state dependent. And the geographic scope and the time period kind of work in tandem. So if it's worldwide, but it's only three months, that might be enforceable. Whereas worldwide, but it's a year, probably not. Um, It also depends on what is the business? What is the customer base? Is this truly a worldwide product, service, whatever? Or is it only North Carolina you know, medical offices or something? Right. So does it vary too with the employee's role within the company? Yeah. So, you know, Jimmy John's years ago used to have every employee sign non-competes and the court said, absolutely not. Your sandwiches are not trade secrets. You know, you don't need to have every last person in the company signing these non-competes. That's just, you know, that's really a restriction on their ability to go earn a living wage. Yeah. So it's what, what is acceptable. it, It really varies. And what results from that whole, you know, all these different criteria on whether this is going to be enforceable or not is that a lot of the time we don't want to go to court and fight over that, right? Because it could go either way. It's so frequently a judgment call depends on the state, depends on what the scope was. So frequently it's, it's, you know, a matter of sending letters to this previous employee saying, Hey, we think you're in violation of the non-compete, the employee writing back and saying, your non-compete's not enforceable. And the company writing back and saying, we're going to be monitoring the situation and making sure you don't disclose our confidential information, blah, blah, blah. The result of it of it being something that's so state by state dependent, court by court dependent is it is hard to say, is this non-compete going to be enforceable or not? And so we, we get a lot of questions like that. And frequently the answer is it might depend on what judge you have. It might depend on which court this ends up in. So there's a lot of factors at play with non-competes. They are a hotly contested and litigated area of the law. Certainly better to have one in place than not to. And if it turns out it's not enforceable, okay. So then, you know, a court strikes it from the agreement, but you still have your non-solicit. You still have your non-disclosure and that kind of stuff. Well, and I think that was what I was going to say too, is even if the non-compete itself is not protectable, you still have your confidential information language from that agreement. You still have your invention disclosures and IP ownership issues. So even if they are allowed to compete, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're able to take what they learned from you and then go apply it in their new business. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're still going to be protected, you know, by the fact that 
you had them assign all the IP over to you. They signed a non-disclosure agreement that said that they both can't disclose your proprietary information to the other parties and can't use it for any purpose other than in performance of services for the company. So you can fall back on that to the extent that you need to. But yeah, non-competes, I mean, they're constantly in the news, whether it's, you know, Obama signing executive orders, prohibiting them and those kinds of things. It, it's a frequent area of discussion and court opinions. Yep. Now, you, you've mentioned a couple of times in our discussion kind of issues that come up during transactions. And, you know, that's a big part of kind of what we do at, at the firm is kind of helping companies navigate these transactions. What are some of the issues from an employment law perspective that are common topics for an acquirer or somebody looking to invest money in the company that they're looking for and maybe a red flag for them? Yeah. What falls in the employment due diligence bucket? There's there's a lot they're going to you know ask about it, ticking all their boxes as they check the different due diligence points. But the really the big ones, the ones that can kind of jam up a deal or just the ones that they're going to want to discuss at length and really get into the nitty gritty on are assignment of inventions. You know, of course, that is critical that the company actually own its IP. Four nine A valuations for your equity compensation. So stock options have to be issued with an exercise price that is at least the then current fair market value of one share of, of your stock. And so if you didn't go get a valuation of the company's stock when you issued these options and they were, you know, your shares were actually a dollar per share, but you issued them with exercise prices of 10 cents a share, that is a matter of deferred compensation now. And so we can we can talk some more about the details on that, but that, that is a big one that they check to see, did you get a foreign on a valuation or not? Okay, how did you determine the value of the shares? Are, do we now have an issue of these of all these option awards that were granted below fair market value? Another one is for folks who received restricted stock or 83Bs timely filed for those issuances. And then just generally, has the company received you know, employment claims? Have there been disputes? Have we gotten, you know, demand letters from attorneys? Those kinds of things. The nice to have kind of stuff is any terminated employees, did they sign releases and get severance when they left? Not a huge deal if they didn't, but they like to see that. Uh, is there a thorough employee handbook? Are there well-maintained employment records? Kind of the stuff we've talked about. Were employees classified correctly, whether it's, you know, as exempt or non-exempt from overtime and independent contractor versus employees. And then the last big one is hashtag me too. We have seen a lot more diligence in that space in, in the last three or four years. It was always something that was, you know, part of due diligence of how there been sexual harassment claims, but I would say there's a much closer eye on that now. But yeah, so, so the really the biggest ones that can create issues, potentially require special indemnification, are 49A valuations, hashtag me too matters. And then if there's been any history of employment issues to date. Yeah, that, that's great. And it sounds like a lot of the things that we touched on yeah. are issues that are relevant uh, to, to the M&A transactions and financing. So I think that's that's helpful. What's something about your practice or about the practice of employment law in general that surprised you? There's a lot of misconceptions about employment law in the United States, just whether it's online or just talking to folks that you know at the family reunion. 
there's a lot of confusion around, you know, other countries have much more fulsome protections for employees than the United States does. And I think people frequently think that there's a lot more protection than there actually is. And then on the other side of the coin, they what we kind of talked about earlier of at-will employment kind of means that there's no protections. It's at-will, so whatever, anything goes. And neither of those are really quite accurate. There's even just, you know, looking online and discussions around employment issues in the news, people will just throw out, oh, that's definitely discrimination. That's definitely, you can totally take them to the cleaners for that. And it's like, well, no, they're not a protected class. What would I sue this person for? You know, um, it's, it is interesting. Uh, just the number of discussions I see unfolding online around things that just, we, we just don't have, you know, or, or the company is small enough that they're not covered by title seven. And so, you know, you can't sue them for that. And, so there's, there's a lot of that. Um, the other one is the number of disputes that, that we get pulled in on that arise out of situations where the employer was just trying to be nice. Mm-hmm. And it ends up creating a bigger mess. Uh, like we talked about being nice and not wanting to tell them about the performance problems, that this isn't working out. And then that results in a claim because you didn't tell this person their performance was lacking. You terminated them out of the blue. And so they think it was because of this other thing that's not permissible when really it was a performance problem and you just didn't say anything or keeping someone on as an employee when it's clear that it's not going to work out. It's clear that either their performance isn't good or they're just not a good fit culturally for the workplace that you have. You keep them on and then something happens and it's too late now. They've now created this issue or made someone uncomfortable or whatever it is. And you were just trying to, you know, kind of not rock the boat and that causes a much bigger mess. We see that a lot. And so it's a matter of being nice, but also protecting yourself and the company and being candid with yeah. people about kind of what's going on and not keeping people that you already think are not a good fit or already think, you know, might say the wrong kind of thing. Maybe maybe you keep those people, but you make sure that you bring in somebody to do training on diversity and microaggressions to try to help that person understand. You know, maybe we can all grow and learn from this experience, and that would that would be the great the best outcome. But yeah, that that's that's frequently the case, isn't it? Is our one of our clients will say, "I was just trying to do, you know, I was just trying to be nice. I was trying to help this person, and now they're suing me, and it's." It, it's so heartbreaking, but mm-hmm. that, that happens all the time. Well, you got to have those difficult conversations sometimes, unfortunately. Absolutely. <laughs> so we are the Founders Shares podcast. And so I always like to ask all of our guests, you know, if you had a, one piece of advice that you want to share with a founder or someone who's thinking about starting a company someday, what would your advice be? One thing I, I touched on before is, you know, to surround yourself with a team, both of employees and investors who believe both in your product or service and in you as a founder. I think if you talk to the folks on Shark Tank, nine times out of 10, they prefer a stronger founder with a less exciting product than the other way around. They want somebody who is going to be a great leader uh, and a great team of people who are, you know, skilled in, in a variety of ways that if you if you can see if you can prove that you've built a strong team that goes a lot further than this is you know the most amazing idea that anyone's ever pitched. So that, that would be one aspect. The other is 
you know, learn enough of the basics around the startup economy and venture capital to not necessarily be fluent in it, but to understand the basic terms so that when you're just kind of meeting people, pitching, or just going to startup events, you understand just kind of the basic terminology around venture capital financing and fundraising and bridge rounds and all that kind of stuff. You know, you have attorneys and people like us to advise you on that so that you don't have to be an expert in it, but you should understand what a lot of that means. So there's a lot of resources on the internet these days, of course, and a lot of different organizations and events for startups that you can learn a lot of that stuff. Um, One potential resource is Brad Feld has a website and an online course that teaches you all about the basics of fundraising. He has a book, Venture Deals, Mm -hmm. that I recommend to folks just trying to get a basic understanding. Just just to kind of to know what what all these buzzwords mean. And then you can go, you know, kind of take what you hear from a potential investor or someone you're pitching to, to go to your attorney and, and then kind of parse through, okay, how do I want to negotiate this? But so you at least understand kind of what is on the table here. So. That's, that's all great stuff. And I appreciate it. And I really appreciate this conversation. I know I learned a lot. Um, <laughs> if uh, other folks have questions kind of about employment law, about corporate law, general stuff about your practice, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Email is the best way. And so, you know, my bio is on our website. Uh, my email is apitman at hutchlaw and always happy to, to chat and try to get things in place ahead of time so that you don't have to deal with a dispute down the road. <laughs> That's amazing. Thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you. That was Ashley Pittman. And if you need any help with employment law, be sure to contact her at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W.com. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting our website at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W dot com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and we'll talk to you next time on the Founder Shares Podcast.